Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, no doubt many people want to turn back the hands of time, or perhaps move them forward. In either case, on this week's Cityscape, we're paying careful attention to time with a guy who knows a whole lot about it. His name is Nick Manusis. He's the executive director of the Horological Society of New York. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for having me, George. So first of all, what is horology? Explain to us what that is. Horology is the study of time, and it's also the art of manufacturing or making timekeepers. So people could call themselves a horologist uh, in the similar sense to someone who may call themselves an athlete. It could mean a lot of different things. It could mean they specialize in watches, it could mean they specialize in clocks, or maybe they, uh, they work more generally on the historical and cultural aspects of how humans perceive time. Uh, so it's a very broad field of study. Why do you think it is that that word horology is not so common in the English language? Uh, well, it's, I mean, every time I tell someone, oh, I, I, I work for the Horological Society of New York, or I'm a horologist, uh, of course, the first thing they, they do is they laugh, and if they haven't heard the word before, they uh, they think of a, a dirty joke or something. It's uh, you know it's kind of an un- unfortunate similarity with with some other words, but horology is actually it's, it's a it's a Latin word, and it comes from uh, the word hour, so it kind of makes sense from a time perspective. It sounds very medical. I'm sure you can pass yourself off as a doctor too if you want the two. <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe a doctor of time, uh, but, uh, or I can, I can, I can repair a, a watch or a clock and bring it back to life, but I don't know about any, uh, any human patients. What was that little ding we heard in the background there? Oh, I'm sorry. That was just a text message that, that came in. It sounded very watchy, clocky to me. Oh, well, there, there may be, I mean, depending on how long the inter- our interview is, you may hear some other dings. You can see this clock behind me. There's another one over here that uh, will we'll start chiming and making some noise at the top of the hour. Yeah, why don't you talk to us about where you are right now at this very moment? Sure. So right now I am at the Horological Society of New York's classroom and workshop. We are located in the middle of Midtown Manhattan on 44th Street and 5th Avenue, right, right uh, close by Bryant Park. And you can see behind me uh, all of our watchmaking benches. And we, uh, well, at least in pre-COVID times, we taught our watchmaking classes here on Tuesday and Thursday evenings. Uh, so we have six benches and we would have uh, six students and one teacher and, and we would teach uh, how to take apart a mechanical watch how to put it back together, and really what makes it tick, what makes it work. You can take a mechanical watch and hold it up to your ear, and you'll hear that tick-tock. Uh, but a lot of people wonder, what, what is that tick-tock from? What does that mean? How does a watch work? And that's really what we teach here at the Horological Society of New York. So now I have to ask the question, what does make a watch tick? Well, the ticking sound that, that you hear is, is from a part of the watch called the escapement. Uh, the escapement is a specific mechanism in the watch. Uh, I like to describe it as a motion translator. So what it does is it takes rotational motion. So if you think about a gear, you have a gear that rotates 360 degrees. Uh, and then it takes that rotational motion and translates it into impulses, side-to-side impulses. 
And if you think about maybe a, a grandfather clock as an example, we have a pendulum and the pendulum is swinging side-to-side uh, -side impulses that, that keep it moving. It's the same thing in a mechanical watch. So we have these, these impulses that are coming from the escapement that keep the balance wheel moving, you know, oscillating from side to side. So when you hold your watch up to your ear and you hear that tick-tock, it's the escapement doing its job. So how intricate is the process of watchmaking? I would imagine it's a very delicate and tedious process. Uh, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's very delicate. Uh, you often will see pictures or photos of watchmakers and they wear a little magnifying glass, right? So, so that's called a loop. And the loop is, uh, it's, it's a magnifying glass that goes over one of your eyes. And you're really looking at everything um, from a magnified perspective. Uh, there's, there's a couple differences between clock making and watchmaking. Uh, but the biggest difference is the tolerances that we're talking about when it comes to manufacturing. And for, for working on a mechanical watch, you're usually thinking about tolerances uh, in terms of millimeters or microns. Uh, so so a, a micron is one one thousandth of, of, a, of a millimeter. So you yourself are a watchmaker, right? You make watches. Uh, well, it's, this is kind of this is kind of the, the trick question that, that you know if I if I'm meeting someone for the first time and they say, hey, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a horologist, and then they say, well, what's horology? That sounds like a dirty word, and so I have to explain to them what uh, what horology is. Or I say, oh, I'm a watchmaker, and they say, oh, you make watches. Can you make me a watch? Uh, it's not that simple. So the the word watchmaker in the English language is a little bit of a misnomer. Right. So most watchmakers, I would say 99% of watchmakers throughout the world do not make their own watches. What they do, uh, they, they repair watches, they fix them, they analyze them. Uh, if something is not quite right in the watch, they can, they can diagnose the symptoms and, and, uh, and, and uh, fix them for the wearer and give, give, them, give the watch back in, in a better condition than it was received. Uh, the analogy that I like to talk about are mechanics. So you, uh, your mechanic can uh, identify problems in, in a car for you. They can fix those problems, uh, but they likely cannot manufacture an entire car themselves, right? Same thing, for, same thing for watchmakers. So when you teach classes at the Horological Society of New York, you're teaching people how to fix watches primarily? Uh, we're really just teaching them what makes a watch work, right? So fixing watches is a that's an entire school you you go uh, you go to study at right so i went to a watchmaking school in miami florida that's a two-year program and it's a really intensive uh, full-time two-year program and when you get out of it you maybe just have the the very beginning the very basics of what it takes to fix or repair a watch and maybe manufacture a couple parts for a watch so at the horological society of new york what we teach here it's just really the basics. What makes a watch tick? What, what makes it run? What is the experience like to use a loop and to be examining a watch up close? And how do we use screwdrivers, tweezers? How do we take apart a mechanical watch and put it back together? Uh, that's kind of the goal of the class. That's what all of our students do. They, they take apart a watch and put it back together. Uh, hopefully it's, 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 a, it's successful at the end. Uh, I'm happy to say we have a you know 100% success rate. We're always able to help students get get to the uh, the finish line and, and put their watch back together and, and have it start running again. 
What are the primary reasons people come to you to learn this skill? What do they tell you as to why they're there? Well, there's there's really two big reasons. Uh, one is someone may be a watch collector or a watch enthusiast. They really are fascinated by watches. Maybe they've uh, purchased some nice watches for themselves and they really want to learn more about what's inside that watch. That's, that's really what we focus on, what we, what we can, can teach them. The other group of people are people that are seriously considering a career change, right? And this kind of sounds, uh, sounds surprising at first, but watchmaking is a very in-demand job. Uh, it's mechanical watches are, are becoming very popular all throughout the world. And you think about it in terms of, of cycles back in the, uh, in the eighties and nineties, a lot of people were wearing battery powered watches, right? These, these fashion watches. And today we live in a world that is uh, more and more digital, right? We have our, our, our smartphone, we have our, our laptops, our, our cars are now basically computers. So there's uh, this, this desire where a lot of people are, are thinking about getting back in touch with mechanical objects. And they're thinking about maybe switching careers, maybe thinking about becoming a watchmaker. So our classes, in a sense, provide these people a way just to dip their toes in the water, just to see what it's like, to see if it's something that they would enjoy, uh, that they have a little bit of natural skill for. And if it is something that they enjoy, we try and help them along. We try and give them some good advice. We point them in the direction of the full-time watchmaking schools that are here in the U.S. And uh, that's really the, the bigger mission of the Horological Society of New York to convince as many people to uh, consider watchmaking uh, as, as a career as possible, really just to advance the art and science of horology. Can you earn a degree in horology? Is there a degree for this? Uh, there's not really uh, any degrees. I say that with a caveat. There are a couple schools that offer these specialized degrees. Uh, I know of a couple people who have uh, created their own PhD study program specifically for horology. Uh, there is, there's not really a, a widespread accepted degree in horology, but there are widespread accepted certifications in horology. Uh, the, there's two major ones uh, right now. They're both acronyms. Uh, one is called WOSTEP. The other is SATA. WOSTEP is W-O-S-T-E-P. SATA is S-A-W-T-A. They're both kind of competing certifications. Uh, it's similar to if you were trying to get a certification to be a, a software engineer, maybe you would go to Microsoft or, or Google and they offer certifications on your, your skill level. Uh, and these are certifications that you get after completing a two-year full-time watchmaking course. Uh, and then you can, you can put that on your resume and go to any of these, uh, these uh, big watch brands that are really all throughout the world and apply for a job. You know, we, think about, we think about watchmaking as primarily something that's done in Switzerland. And that's true to, to an extent. But all of the big watch brands all throughout the world, uh, they, they have service centers that are spread out around the world. So if, you, if you're here in New York and you need to get, uh, send your watch in for service, it may not necessarily be going back to Switzerland. Hopefully it would be repaired here in the USA. And the same thing is, uh, is true for uh, other, other countries around the world and, and major watch brands that have service centers in those countries. Who are among the premier watch companies 
in this country and really around the globe? Well, this is a this is a, a very interesting question, and it's it's one of these questions that that I kind of need to dance around uh, because of my position at at the Horological Society of New York. So uh, HSNY is the acronym for the Horological Society. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we really try and focus on our mission of horological education from a neutral pers perspective. And what that means is that I always try to avoid uh, saying one brand is, is uh, better than the other or one is uh, more valuable than the other. Uh, I, uh, I just like watches. <laughs> uh, and this, you know, the, the, it's kind of the same goal for, for our organization. We just like to promote watches. We like to promote horological education. Um, and really kind of the funny thing is when you get down to it, even the most expensive, valuable, rare watch that you get, uh, or the cheapest uh, uh, mechanical watch that you get, when you open them up and you look inside at the movement, uh, for, for the most part, the, uh, the gear train is the same. They, they all have an escapement. They all have a mainspring. They all have a balance wheel that oscillates. Uh, of course, some watches are uh, more finely finished than others. They'll be polished, they'll have a beautiful, spectacular design. Maybe it will be, uh, maybe some watches will be regulated better than others. They'll keep more precise time. Uh, but they, at the end of the day, the mechanical watch is a really mature technology. Uh, it's, it's something, when I say mature, I mean, there's, there's not been a huge amount of new advancements or technologies in the past century, really. Well, let me ask you this question then. Why are some watches just so super expensive? If the mechanics are generally the same, is it just because, hey, we got a really good brand and we could bring those prices up? Well, that certainly is is part of it, right? So the brands can, can uh, work on their marketing from a historical perspective. There's lots of watch brands that have been around for hundreds of years. And that's something that they can market and that consumers are really interested in. Uh, and... Uh, Beyond beyond the marketing, uh, there are there are other ways that watches can increase their value. Uh, it, it's what what we call complications. Uh, Apple has done a good job with this with their Apple Watch. They have they they talk about complications. They say these are uh, extra features that you can add to your your smartwatch. Well, it's the same thing for mechanical watches. A complication is any feature of a mechanical watch beyond just simple time, just hours and hours and minutes and seconds. So a complication could be, uh, it could be a, a, a calendar mechanism. It could, it could be a, uh, uh, a mechanism showing you the phase, phase of the moon. Um, there's uh, uh, a stopwatch is a, is a pretty common complication. So these are ways that watch brands can uh, can increase the value of, of their watch, uh, increase the complexity of it, and make them more desirable for, for consumers. What drew you, Nick, to horology? Well, I had a, a previous career in the tech industry. I worked in Silicon Valley uh, back in California, uh, and it was, it was one, of these, one of these things where uh, the... It was, a, it was a really fast-paced industry. Uh, you were moving from one company to the next, but it wasn't something that I knew I wanted to do for my entire life, right? It was one of these things that maybe you're going to get worn out doing it af after uh, a few years in, in the industry. 
I knew I wanted to find something that I would be happy doing for the rest of my life, something that I wouldn't really consider to be a job. It wouldn't be, I wouldn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I've got to go to work, uh, I've got to pay the bills. I want to do something that, I, that is, uh, gives me some personal satisfaction. And watches uh, really do give me that personal satisfaction. So I, uh, you know, I, I spent a, a long time in the tech industry in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then my wife kind of encouraged me. She knew that I was thinking about making a change. And she, she said, why don't you uh, look into watchmaking? Because it's, uh, she knew that I was big into collecting watches and reading about their history. And one thing led to another. We ended up moving to Miami, Florida. And I enrolled in, in uh, watchmaking school there. Um, the thing that really, I guess, surprised me uh, and made me, made me really take it seriously uh, was when I learned that most watchmaking schools are totally free. There's, there's no tuition. Uh, you just have to pay for you know, your, your living expenses. Uh, sometimes you have to buy some tools, but it's just not that big of an expense. And then I learned how in-demand watchmakers are. I learned that they, uh, it's kind of similar to being a software engineer in Silicon Valley where uh, you know, it's all these different companies are trying to hire you. You never really need to look for a job. You just get, uh, get companies saying, hey, would you consider coming, coming in and working for us? It's, it's a similar thing in watchmaking. So it just all kind of clicked together. And I thought, hey, this is something I want to do. I went to school. After that, I uh, uh, ended up here in New York, and New York is really a, a great place for for watchmaking. Why is that? Well, it's historically it's it's always been the center of of uh, of, of watchmaking in the U.S. Just in terms of the volume of trade and business that's that's going on, we've had these major uh, major American brands that are elsewhere in the U.S. But all of the, the major uh, Swiss brands have, have their North American headquarters here in New York, right? For example, um, you could probably hear the, uh, the, uh, the clock chiming, chiming behind me. It's a great sound. It's just a, it's a good place for watchmaking in the sense that we have, uh, we have all the auction houses here. We have all the fancy boutiques on Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue. We have uh, lots of collectors here in New York. And we have a, a, a really um, fun nonprofit organization that's doing a mission, uh, it's working towards a mission that, that really matters. And that's just promoting the educational aspect of horology. It's the Horological Society of New York. What, if any, impact do you think COVID is having on timekeeping, on people purchasing watches? You had mentioned that people want to sort of go back to that simplicity of having a watch. Do you think? COVID might have that sort of impact as well, that it might help to fuel the fact that people just want to go back to simpler times and have a watch on their wrist. Yeah, I, I certainly would like to go back to simpler times uh, right now. Uh, but the, I think that, that COVID is doing uh, two things uh, that are horologically related. Uh, one is it's causing people to think more, uh, more short-term right? Because we have a lot of short-term concerns right now. Everyone is thinking about uh, what's, what's the stock market going to look like? What's the rest of the year going to look like? Uh, what's my health going to look like? Uh, so from a, from a philosophical time perspective, I think it's shifted the, uh, all of our general perception of, of time into more of a focus on short-term 
versus long-term. Uh, that is kind of a natural thing that, that humans would do during a, a time of, of stress, right? But at the, on the other hand, if you, if you look at any auction results, uh, you'll see a, a really curious uh, pattern going on. So throughout the year, we have a lot of different uh, auctions that are, that are happening. Um, and they're selling valuable watches, rare watches, limited edition watches. And just to kind of put it nicely, the, the prices are going through the roof. There is a newfound interest in mechanical watches uh, all around the world. People are really getting into them. Uh, there is a little bit of a speculation here uh, that, that maybe this is more from an uh, economical perspective. Maybe people are starting to take their money out of certain currencies and put them into uh, into assets that they think will, will hold value better. Uh, it also could be that a lot of uh, people just have a lot of spare time and they're at home and uh, they can uh, indulge in their interests, in their uh, curiosity, um, participate in a, in a watch auction where maybe they couldn't do it before because they were too busy at, at work uh, or with other, other obligations. Are you yourself a collector of watches, Nick? No, not really. No. I mean, I've got, uh, I've, I've got a very modest collection. Uh, it, it, my collection really focuses on uh, American pocket watches specifically. Uh, I'm by no means a serious watch collector. Uh, I know a lot about how watches work. I can take them apart, put them back together, fix them. Uh, but I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, one of these people that analyzes every reference number and knows the exact difference between this dial and, and that dial. Uh, so I'm, I'm really not, not much of a collector myself. Is the pocket watch something that is still manufactured or is that just a thing of the past now? It's not really manufactured anymore. There may be a few uh, very small uh, brands or makers that that that, uh, that that make pocket watches, but it's they're really not manufactured anymore. Uh, I love pocket watches because I think they they represent a fantastic value. Uh, right, you can you can look at a mechanical watch that is really complicated. It has a perpetual calendar, moon phase mechanism maybe a chronograph, it's really finely finished, it's, it's just a beautiful watch, and it's, it's just crazy expensive. And you can, you can find the same, the same exact uh, mechanism in a pocket watch, and it's on eBay for a, a few hundred dollars, right? And it just doesn't, to, to me, it's just, that, that doesn't uh, make sense. I, I feel like pocket watches are very undervalued, uh, from an from a engineering perspective, from a mechanical perspective, they're, they're really very similar. It's just the size, right? That's, it's just everything is slightly smaller in, in the mechanical watch. Uh, so I, I really enjoy collecting uh, pocket watches. Uh, I also enjoy them because they represent a time uh, where the American watch industry was at its peak when it was, when it was really uh, one of the biggest watch industries in the world. Yeah, it's it's so it's kind of these watches represent that that slice of time that is is uh, doesn't really exist anymore. It's a it's a fun diversion for for me. How do you keep time on a day to day basis on your wrist or in your pocket? On my pocket, just with my with my iPhone. Uh, on my wrist, uh, I'm actually wearing a, an, an Apple Watch today. One of the the new Apple watches. Uh, 
but as you can hear all around me, I've got chiming clocks. <laughs> it's just that kind of part of, of the territory here. I've got, we've got a, a, I've probably got 50 clocks in that display case uh, uh, behind us here. Uh, it's where we, it's kind of a funny story. We set up this big exhibition at the Horological Society. It was one of our, our first uh, exhibitions that we were gonna welcome the public to. And we opened the exhibition in, uh, in February. And we were really excited about it in this new space that we have, but now it's it's just been it's just been sitting here uh, because you know we can't we can't really have the public in here just yet. But we're uh, we're looking forward to restarting that hopefully next year when we can. What do you think it is, Nick, about the sound of a ticking clock or a ticking watch that is especially soothing? I find it especially soothing. It can put you to sleep, really. Yeah, well, it it represents uh, how time is passing, right? When when uh, I'll give you an example, uh, early when when we were just starting this interview, uh, I was having some Wi-Fi connection issues, and I was thinking I was kind of rushed, and I was thinking, oh wow, um, uh, I, I felt bad that my Wi-Fi was was not working, and I was trying to find a better signal, and I was rushing around. So in that time period, my uh, my perception of time was uh, uh, was speeding up. Right, I wasn't taking my time. I was trying to move quickly. Other times, maybe I'm going to be at home sitting on the couch relaxing. My perception of time slows down, and that that TikTok is a reminder to all of us that time does not discriminate. Right, time is the common denominator. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. Uh, we all uh, we all have have the the same amount of time. A second is a second. A minute is a minute. Uh, I've got all these ticking clocks in, in our, our office and it, it reminds me, we just got a new clock. It's this clock that was, uh, that was donated by Save America's Clocks. It's, it's a, a, one of our, 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 uh, our, our friends, it's a similar organization and they, they focus on uh, preserving tower clocks. Uh, and so it's, the, the reason I bring it up is you should hear the TikTok of this tower clock. It's the loudest TikTok you've ever heard. Uh, because it's it's a huge clock me mechanism that is meant to uh, be up in, in a, a, a tower with with four massive dials facing the street. So the the TikTok it doesn't matter if it's uh, if it's uh, in your wristwatch and it's just a tick tick tick, or if it is a tower clock and it's a tick tock tick tock. It's still the same second. I guess that's what I'm I'm getting at. I understand that you are going to be featured in an upcoming documentary about timekeeping, right? Uh, yes, yes. So this is a, a movie coming out. Uh, I believe it's 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 scheduled for next year. It's uh, Keeper of Time. It's it's a documentary, really about horology. Uh, and I appreciate this because it's it's thinking about horology from a broader perspective. It's not just watches or just clocks. It's it's horology from uh, from all possible perspectives. Uh, so the the director uh, Michael Solba, uh, he's he's done an amazing job with this film. I've seen some bits and pieces, some sneak previews of it so far, and I am uh, I'm helping uh, I'm helping the director out. I'm I'm, I'm uh, uh, working as the I guess the, my title is the horological consultant for the film. Uh, so I'm I've been uh, been uh, working as best I can to to help him with uh, connections to get into. Uh, 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 manu manufacturers in Switzerland to uh, uh, to interview certain people just to try try and get him to uh, get in front of the most amount of people possible to really tell the story uh, 
of horology, to tell the story of time, to tell the story of how we perceive time and how we build objects that keep track of time. So it's, it's, it's really uh, gonna be a fun film and I'm looking forward to it uh, coming out next year. Uh, I don't know what the, what the uh, release of the film is gonna be like anymore because you know, we're not really going to, to movie theaters uh, these days, but uh, maybe in the future, if you get in touch with Michael Solba or I, I, can, I can make an introduction, maybe you guys can have a chat and we can tell you more about it. That definitely sounds good. Do you have a horological role model, Nick? I can answer immediately and tell you uh, George Daniels. He was widely considered to be uh, one of the most important watchmakers in modern times. And the reason I say modern times is because you know, earlier I mentioned that watchmaking is a very mature technology. And in the past 100 years, there have not been a huge amount of uh, uh, new developments, new inventions in watchmaking. But there is an exception. The exception is uh, this British watchmaker, George Daniels. He invented a new type of escapement. All escapements, at least in mechanical watches, they require some lubrication, they need some oil or else they'll very quickly wear out, they'll very quickly stop. George Daniels invented an escapement that fits in a mechanical watch that does not need any lubrication, does not need any oil. It's called the coaxial escapement. Uh, so he, he's really, uh, he was really a role model to me, uh, just learning about his life and his career. Thank you so much for your time, Nick. Thank you, George. I really, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Nick Manousis is the executive director of the Horological Society of New York. More info at hs-ny.org. Our music is courtesy of bensounds.com. A big thanks to our producer, Maddie Bristow. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.